mentorship, I think in its simplest term is, is just having a buddy and eating disorder recovery can be incredibly isolating. It can be incredibly lonely and it can also feel like nobody really understands. It's, it's such a unique experience that can be really difficult to really comprehend from the outside. And so to have somebody who can say, you know, I've been through something extremely similar, that can be a really meaningful connection to have during the difficult process of recovery. Welcome to Equipped to Recover, where we explore the intersection of recovery stories and eating disorder science to show you that recovery is not only possible, it is worth it. I'm Jessica Flint, and today I'm joined with Maris Degner. Maris is a yoga teacher, mental health advocate, artist, ferocious reader, and talented soulful writer. She is the star of the documentary, I Am Maris, which portrays her story from healing from mental illness and anorexia. Maris is passionate about increasing access to effective eating disorder treatment and is the director of peer mentorship at Equip, a fully virtual eating disorder treatment center. Maris is dedicated to using her voice to be a source of hope for those struggling with mental illness, inspiring others that they can do hard things, and she does this in such a sincere, introspective, and fearlessly authentic way. I'm so excited for you to listen in as Maris and I discuss ways to strengthen, deepen, and navigate your recovery from an eating disorder. Welcome, Maris. So nice to have you here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. That was a very generous introduction. So thank you. Well, fully deserving. I absolutely just love the way that you show up in the world. And in preparing for our conversation today, I was reading a lot about you and I will rewatch the documentary, I Am Maris, which I highly recommend to all listeners. Check out. In, in the documentary, you talked a lot about your story of being hospitalized for anorexia when you were just a teenager, a very young teenager. And the guilt, the shame, isolation, depression, anxiety, panic attacks, and just this crippling desire to feel in control with, with all this you know, inner instability. And that marked most of your adolescence. And how did you begin the process of healing yourself and finding self-acceptance in this time period? And what obstacles did you initially face in this process? It's a really good question. Um, I do want to say up front that I also had a lot of privilege in the arena. Um, you know, we had a lot of financial privilege. We never had to worry about affording treatment or being able to pay for bills if my parents took time off to be able to support me more. Um, we also had geographical privilege. We were luckily very close to Stanford and, and quickly got access to care. So there were a lot of things underneath that that did benefit me. And of course, like any experience with mental illness, there were still, of course, <laughs> obstacles and challenges. And I would probably say the biggest one, at least initially, was just a lack of understanding and education with mental illness and especially eating disorders within my family at the time. Um, probably like many folks, they mostly knew like pop culture representations of eating disorders, definitely knew many of the stereotypes or the misinformation about who gets eating disorders, what causes them, how you treat them. And it did take time to kind of parse through all of that and figure out what would be effective in treating the eating disorder. So I will say initially, I, I did not want to recover. <laughs> it took a long time to even acknowledge that I had an eating disorder. Um, and then when I did acknowledge it, it still was not with an excitement or readiness to change it. 
And I, I really did rely on my parents being able to step in when the eating disorder voice was too loud for me to be able to take those steps on my own. Um, so I really did come down to that community support to really get the ball moving. And then once I was in a more stable place through their support, then I could do more of that deeper digging and, and more of that inner work over time. It seems, yeah, that ambivalence is a very key kind of factor when people are struggling with eating disorder. They're not even fully aware that they have an eating disorder or, you know, to the extent that they're entrenched in it. Oh, definitely. You know, I think there's so many messages we get from society that you're doing the right thing, right? You're supposed to have this control over your body and you're supposed to invest a lot of worth in your appearance or your size or how you eat. And so there were a lot of reaffirming messages that this was all just part of being a person <laughs> in society. This was part of keeping it all under wraps. And it took a long time to be able to fully acknowledge all the negative implications that came with that and all the costs that came with it. And this aspect of control, I found that really interesting in, in your story was how you you found that the eating disorder kind of gave you a sense of control and, and more so it, it helped kind of relieve the anxiety. So is that, how did you work with understanding like that you have this anxious temperament? It's been really helpful to acknowledge that I am someone with an anxious temperament. <laughs> okay, I remember being a young kid and being called a worrywart or you know, Maris is a worrier. And it's not an inherently bad or, or broken thing about me, right? Um, so being able to learn just the resources or the tools, the things that help me navigate through those moments of anxiety or distress and be able to find a way through it. Um, that, that's been helpful. And that's taken a lot of practice. <laughs> it's taken a lot of time. I will say where that element of control ties in is the eating disorder is really convincing, right? It tells you like, this is something that you can methodically control. This is something that will, if, if you know, your weight gets to this certain point or your body is this certain way, everything else will fall into place. Your life will be perfect. And it did take time. And, and honestly, the the support and reflections from other people who could at times see things maybe a bit more accurately than I could, that that was fleeting at best. <laughs> and most of the time just wasn't real at all um, because I, I didn't have the control. It was the eating disorder that had the control. And maybe for those brief moments where I would feel the relief of you know being able to handle a certain situation or feel in full control of a situation, I, I ultimately felt worse in the long run because it meant turning down a social event with friends, or it meant not being able to accept food that was lovingly prepared by my grandmother, um, who I didn't get to see very often. So it maybe there was that fleeting moment of feeling like I had one, but it was really the eating disorder winning. And it was really shutting down a lot of other areas of my life. Yeah. Like how you said, it ends up controlling you. Like and initially you think, okay, this is the way I'm getting control. I'm alleviating this anxiety. And then it's controlling me and the anxiety is even getting higher and higher now that I'm in this state of malnourishment and my body's just mm -hmm. not doing well. So what do you turn to now when you, you know, feel anxiety? Like what are ways that you are able to handle this without eating disorder behaviors? You know, I've been really lucky that in my work with Equip, I've been exposed to a lot of theory and discussion around DBT or dialectical behavior therapy, which I didn't have access to in, in my recovery, but now that I hear it talked about in this way, I'm like, oh, bits and pieces of that are things that I learned in other ways. You know, DBT draws a lot from Eastern philosophy and practices and 
yoga and meditation was really instrumental in, in my recovery, but also just to hear this practical discussion around skills, like concrete things that I can do. So if it's a, if it's just a distressing moment, maybe my goal isn't to resolve that or take away or fix the situation, but maybe I have some skills in my back pocket for how do I get through this situation without making it worse. <laughs> and if that means scrolling through my phone for a few minutes to just distract myself, that is totally fine. And then later I can find another way to resolve or regulate that emotion. So that shows up in, in all different forms. I think about it in the long term. Like there's day-to-day things I do that I know help, um, you know, give me the best shot at navigating life as an anxious person, like eating enough, resting enough, playing enough. And there's also things that I can do in the moment to regulate and ground myself if needed. Yeah. Do you have a skill that's really helped you? So you mentioned distraction. Is there another one that's your trusty skill that you can pull out? <laughs> I think radical acceptance is one that Mm. comes to mind. Just this idea that there will be some things that are outside of our control and we can create more suffering if we try to change it. And as someone moving through anxiety, there's always that feeling in the back of my head, like, well, if I could just fix this, (laughs) you know, Mm. there, there has to be some way that I can improve this or change this, or it must be my fault that it's going wrong. And to have this other way of thinking about it, that I don't have to like or agree or love what's happening, but I can accept it, that usually opens me up to finding other ways to approach the situation mindfully. Yeah. It's like a lightness when you accept it and you're kind of explaining this other experience of like heaviness, like, oh, it's all like my fault, like this weight on the on your shoulders that you have to fix it. And then acceptance kind of just takes that off and just allows it to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There is this point in, in your documentary, I Am Maris, where you, it was right after you did your teacher training program and it was most, it was one of my favorite parts of the whole documentary. And you just talked about this concept of celebration of sensation. And after being, you know, shut off so many years and numb and you just were able to experience like your love for yourselves again and this appreciation of your body and the movement. So I'm curious to just kind of get your your perspective now on celebration of sensation and, and the role it played in your recovery. Mm. You know, I know myself, like many other people navigating an eating disorder, got very good at shutting down or ignoring feeling, <laughs> whether that was emotions that were hard to look at or navigate, whether that was physical sensations like hunger or the need to rest. I got pretty good at ignoring those things. And it was pretty challenging to then want to tap back into it and eventually get to a point where there could even be joyfulness in it. So at first it was learning how to tolerate, like how do I tolerate the feeling of fullness? How do I listen to the feeling of hunger and give myself food, even if it's difficult? That wasn't necessarily a celebration, (laughs) but it was a necessary (laughs) stepping stone, right? Um, And, you know, the more practice I got with that, the more there was freedom and room to have celebration. And I think Um, Just to take my relationship with movement as an example, you know, it used to have such a narrow and singular focus to it. It was to to change or control my body shape or size. And there was no room for celebration or even noticing sensation in that. I wasn't doing it to feel. I was doing it to get to the end goal that didn't even really exist because the goalposts kept moving. 
but there was no room to really feel sensation because that would mean that, oh, maybe I would notice that I'm tired and notice I need to take rest. Maybe I would notice that I just plain don't want to move my body today. And that wasn't labeled as okay in the moment. And so it was really helpful for me. You know, I happened to find a, a yoga studio that I think was able to honor the, the holistic practice of yoga, that it's more than just moving your body. It also means showing it kindness and resting when you need rest and being okay with practicing yoga elsewhere in your life, which might look like sitting quietly and breathing for five minutes or taking two deep breaths in the shower that morning. That to me allowed a lot more access for celebration because I was actually in the moment and I was able to be adapting to the situation at hand. So it's like going from tolerating these sensations to then really allowing them to be and then embodying them, however that looks like. So then when when we look at kind of this aspect of coming onto the mat, right? Because you have this, I mean, it's amazing. I think you went through your yoga teacher training when you were 16, right? When most people are like getting their license, you're getting like licensed in yoga <laughs> teacher training. So that's so cool. And how did that kind of experience then of becoming a teacher, essentially, because you ended up teaching classes even at this young age, how did that prepare you for your role now as, a, as the director of peer mentorship or just stepping into to appear a mentor role, which in many ways is is teaching people how to, to do the work? It, it is interesting to take a step back and, you know, look at it that way and, and see it all connected in that way. I've definitely, over the past few years, been shifting my relationship with how I think about teaching and, and talking about yogic practices. I think there's been an increasing awareness around you know, the role that cultural appropriation or misrepresentation of yoga, um, I think that has been a bigger discussion that's being had. And it's been really helpful for me in finding those points of reflection. Um, so I think it's easy for me to kind of, you know, sit down and want to pick apart like, oh, you did this wrong <laughs> or, oh, you wouldn't say it that way again. But I, I really appreciate your invitation to look for those threads of the positive outcomes that has come throughout that, that whole journey. And, you know, I was so lucky that the teachers that I had um, really ingrained in me the core values that I think also show up in mentorship, you know, being non-judgmental, always meeting someone where they are being non-directive, instead being curious with someone and walking alongside them to explore what will be best for them, separating out our, our journeys and experiences, whether it's on the mat or in recovery, maybe this pose feels really good in my body. Maybe it doesn't work in your body. It doesn't mean one of us is right or wrong, but it means we can work together to find something that works well to support you in, in your healing, whatever that looks like. Um, there's so many common threads there, and I really do owe so much to what I've learned through that that practice and, and to the teachers who supported me in that. And it, it does feel very interconnected in a lot of ways. Yeah. And kind of going back to this idea of like skills, right? Like the skill may work for somebody else. And this time, this asana may work for somebody or they may go deeper into it. Someone may understand and embody a skill more than another. And just having that, that awareness and non-judgment is, is super helpful. Now, how does this peer mentorship work for people who have never even heard of a mentor? So let's step back all the way to like, what is a mentor in recovery? And then how are you applying this model at Equip? Mentorship, I think in its simplest term is, is just having a buddy. 
And eating disorder recovery can be incredibly isolating. It can be incredibly lonely. And it can also feel like nobody really understands. It's it's such a unique experience that can be really difficult to really comprehend from the outside. And so to have somebody who can say, you know, I've been through something extremely similar, that can be a really meaningful connection to have during the difficult process of recovery. So at Equip, for example, when we're utilizing family-based treatment, and oftentimes a lot of that time and space is dedicated to the full family unit or the full support system coming together, it can also be really nice to have that one-on-one space, you know, that time with, with one person where you can vent about how hard recovery is, um, where you can get hopefulness. You can ask your peer mentor, did this really change for you? <laughs> like, did this, this, Is this something that actually shifted for you over time? And it can also be where you get concrete advice or work collaboratively to figure out how am I going to cope ahead for this situation I have coming up? How am I going to get through that? Um, so we, we take a lot of care to make sure that our mentors are trained in those elements I mentioned earlier of non-judgment and meeting people where they are. And it could be a really supportive and beautiful experience for folks. Yeah, I love that. Giving hope and being there for, for them in the hard times. Is there kind of a, a boundary around the mental relationship where you can contact them from this time to this time? Or like, what would that look like if someone has a mentor? You know, we do have some boundaries just by necessity. You know, we want to make sure that mentorship feels like a really supportive and boundaried space, different from something like a, a friendship, for example, with a peer at school. And so that does mean that patients can send a message at any time to their peer mentor, like a note of, you know, I want to make sure we talk about this in our next session, or I just want to get this off my mind. I want to share it with you. They're more than welcome to send that anytime. And then the peer mentor will access it the next time that they're in office or able to check their messages. And then sessions happen just based on the frequency that's appropriate for that individual. So we're able to kind of titrate up or down depending on how things are going. Is there a big life event coming up? Are we planning for a big transition, like maybe moving off to college? So everything can be very adaptable to what that individual needs at that time. Oh, that's so cool. So they they do the work in like the sessions over video and Mm -hmm. then there's chat-based kind of connection in between or generally it's the session the session is the main connection point? I would say the session is the main connection point. And then chat could be this kind of additional resource or additional thread to keep the conversation going or, you know, pass along a worksheet that we talked about in session. But the the primary work is just done face-to-face. So you mentioned worksheets. So then the mentors also kind of give these tools. Is that also kind of part of the relationship is empowering them with, with knowledge and different frameworks? Definitely. You know, our, our peer mentors are able to teach skills. So to like teach the radical acceptance skill, for example, but then also help them practice implementing it. So I can, you know, tell someone, you know, there's this pros and cons list you could try. We could also sit down in session together and make that pros and cons list together. So it is a blend. And again, very dependent on where the patient's at. If it's a day where we just need to vent, we can just vent. (laughs) We don't have to get into skills. But a lot of the time we do want to shift to that empowerment model that you said of let's practice this together and, and let's come up with some ways you can navigate this. So it seems like there's like accountability on on like in one facet of it. And then there's there's also a bit of a coaching. Would you say there's somewhat a coaching or would you guys not necessarily like tie that together with a mentor? Because it, it seems like there is a bit of that accountability, coaching, structure, support. 
Yeah. You know, I think there are, um, I'm so excited in seeing the field integrate more and more of these dynamics of mentors and coaches. And I think there's so many interconnecting threads there. And I, I think at the core of it, what it comes down to is having someone who can meet you in that moment in that day and, and work together with you to decide what is the support you need for this moment. And you're right. Some days it can look like, let's come up with a goal together. Let's come up with a plan. Other days it might be like, hey, I'm so sick of talking about eating disorders. Can we just talk about what I'm watching on Netflix this week? And, and that's equally important to the process of recovery when we think about it in the long term, right? It's not just about what happens in each individual day of session. It's also about what happens over the weeks and months and, uh, of recovery and how do we keep you engaged in the long term? Mm, yeah, I'm building that relationship because I mean, that is recovery is starting to find out who you are outside of the eating disorder. And if you're always coming back to the eating disorder, which, you know, it has its place to talk about it, but it also is kind of celebrating these moments of sensation <laughs> where you're experiencing things that are joyful, things that are outside of of the normal rhetoric of the eating disorder kind of treatment and 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 yeah. talk. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's what it's so bittersweet, right? Because as folks progress in their recoveries, as they heal, we'll see them less. And that's, you know, bittersweet because you want to be able to like hear what's going on and you know stay in touch. And we still do that. But it's also like, oh, I am so glad you're out there living your life. Like that is ultimately the goal that we have is that um, you're out there practicing these skills and building those connections and, and building what we often call a life worth living. That's where recovery really lies. And, you know, with this mentorship model, how do you see it transforming in the years to come? Is there any kind of things that you're excited about in the possibilities of this and maybe how it hasn't been applied in the eating disorder field? Seems like you guys are really blazing that trail of of making this part of a, a treatment model? I think we're always learning more. You know, we're always learning from patients, right? When we hear this was helpful or I wish I had this, I think we're, we're always keeping our, our eyes and ears open because that's how, we, that's how we walk the walk, right? You know, we're talking about lived experience being valuable here. We want to hear what is working with patients or really resonating with patients over time. Um, so it's something that we're always open to adapting and, and shifting and changing. I will say I'm, I'm just continuously impressed by, by the peer mentors on our team. And I just want to take a moment to like gloat about them because they're such amazing people doing such amazing work every single day. And just their ingenuity and innovation that they bring to this work is an incredible wealth of knowledge. So, you know, when I see a peer mentor say, hey, you know, this, this patient's been pretty hesitant about meeting with a peer mentor, still having trouble getting that first session going. So I, I recorded this quick hello video and, and just let them know about some of our our interests that we might share and put a face to the name. You know, those are just the little touches that, you know, when you put yourself in the shoes of what would I have needed when I was in that difficult spot or what would have been supportive for me when I was in treatment, I think that's how we move the field forward. And that's how we continue to improve upon what we're already doing. And I imagine for the mentors, it's a really fulfilling experience to be able to, to give back and, and to be that kind of light for somebody who's in the darkness and, and be there for them. That probably really helps them in their own recovery. Like, is that something that you've seen with the mentors is their recovery gets strengthened by playing this role of a mentor? You know, I know for at least myself in doing this work, it is a really high source of accountability. <laughs> you know, if I'm going to be talking to talk to patients all day long about recovery and you know, the benefits of recovery, 
it, it does make it a bit easier to hold myself accountable to those longer term practices of sustaining recovery. Um, so I do think that shows up for for our peer mentors and being able to really live and breathe what they're working on with patients. Um, I do think too, it, you know, not to say you always need to find a silver lining in things. Sometimes things are just hard and that's how it is. But I do think for many of our peer mentors, it does bring this sense of meaning to the incredibly hard process of recovery. And, you know, now I get to see that ripple out into other people and, and meet them perhaps earlier in their journey than I had access to that sort of support. It makes such a difference when you can start to see like all this work you're putting into it will like in the end add up to something. I think there's so many people who get stuck in that hopelessness kind of zone of just like, I'm battling this, you know, I'm eating these meals day in and day out. I don't feel like I'm getting better. And then to to have that support of someone who, who's been there, who's seen the deeper meaning and can embody it, right? Like and really know it in a way just opens up the person who's struggling to a little bit more confidence, I would say. Like mm-hmm. just it's it, just a tiny, like a little spark or just a little more hope, you know, that little spark of hope and confidence. And that's enough. I can get you through it. And it, it yeah. grows and grows. Definitely. And I think it can, I think it can push the envelope a bit further, right? Mm-hmm. Like I know when I was first beginning treatment, I didn't know anybody who openly shared with me that they were in recovery. Um, I did start to meet folks who were, you know, still struggling or still really actively in the process of, of recovery. And so I, I just didn't really have a concept of how far recovery could go. Like I, I kind of had this idea in my head of like, it'll get a little bit better, but it will always be a struggle. Like there will always be some cap, right, to how recovered I can be. And it really wasn't until later that I got access to people who talked about, you know, their own healing journeys and kind of, yeah, there, I don't actually think that much about the eating disorder anymore. Or yeah, no, I actually can eat that food and not worry about it all day long. I was like, what? <laughs> you can really do that? And so I think having access to someone who can tell those stories even just casually mentioning at the start of session, like, oh yeah, I had friends over for dinner the other night. My friend brought this awesome, you know, brownies and ice cream dessert. That can be something that gets the wheels turning of perhaps there's more out there that I can access and work towards than I originally thought was possible. Very well said. Yeah. You kind of just mentioned tied back to your your recovery journey and maybe questioning at points, is this as good as it's going to get? Like, you know, where is this, is this what I'm destined to, to be living? And I'm curious now, being you know far on the other side, what is the most valuable thing that your eating disorder recovery journey has taught you? You know, the the eating disorder, at least the way I experienced it, was all about conditions, right? Like, well, you'll be happy when this happens, or well, you don't really deserve to enjoy that until this happens. And you know, moving through recovery, I think, was peeling back all those layers and really trying to practice and believe in this concept of unconditional worthiness. There's nothing I need to do to earn love. There's nothing I need to do to earn worthiness. I just am. (laughs) And I think that's something that is really countercultural in a lot of ways to the society we live in. There's always this pressure to be doing more, pursuing more, achieving more. And it was really impactful for me in my recovery to start to challenge those ideas. And it didn't mean I couldn't have ambition. It didn't mean I couldn't work towards goals, but it did mean that at the end of the day, if nothing worked out, I still needed to practice believing in the sense that I'm I'm already enough as I, I am. And that takes practice. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's a constant state I always exist in, 
but it, it has gotten easier to practice that and, and really believe in that. Do you do like enough checkpoints during the day? Like I've done enough. I am enough. <laughs> like, do you like kind of have these little present moment awareness checkpoints? You know, mindfulness affirmation, I think that can all be a part of it. And I think this is something that at least for me has really shown up in, in dialogue and connection with others which like I mentioned earlier, you know, the eating disorder really loves to thrive in isolation. And so it's been kind of a challenge for me to pull these conversations out into talking to a therapist or to my partner or to my friends. And I think that's where we can support each other in that practice too. It can be really easy when we're on our own to fall into that conditional thinking and to shift into that I am enough can come up in our, our relationships and the social you know, connections that we have. Yeah. And speaking of support, in your opinion, what are the best ways someone can support a loved one going through an eating disorder? I do think it's a bit, you know, dependent on your relationship to that person. Um, so for example, you know, within the parent-child dynamic that my my parents and I had, it was ultimately really supportive and helpful for them to step in and plate the meals and sit with me until they were done. Like that kind of practical support of I almost imagine it as my parents stepping between me and the eating disorder to say like, you're not going to take this away from her. I didn't love it at the time. <laughs> I didn't even like it, but ultimately that was hugely instrumental. And I know it can be a big challenge or, or fear for parents in their relationship with their child, but ultimately it was really what I needed. And at the same time, would that have been appropriate for my like 13 year old peers to do? No, it's not necessarily appropriate for that dynamic, right? So for, for folks in maybe that situation, I would say learning those core skills of validation um, and listening, really actively listening, can be incredibly helpful. So it's not something that we're taught in school. At least I hear now that's happening more often. At least I wasn't taught in school how to be validating, how to not jump to problem solving, how to not assume I understand already, but to listen deeply and reflect back what I'm hearing and say, I hear you and I believe you in how you're feeling and experiencing this moment. That can be a really impactful thing to bring to someone's recovery. It's definitely a skill to not want to fix or problem solve because I think a lot of people can get this validation from playing the role of the healer or you know the one who is supportive and there for somebody in the sense that they're going to try to help them get through the experience through advice or giving them something to try or do. And that teacher role, in, in a way, it's evolved to being more of the the passive, letting them on their own kind of figure it out while supporting them, listening to them, giving them space yeah. to to be going through it. Yeah. And I think on the perhaps more um, you know active side of that, I would say there's things that all of us can do, and I would argue all of us would benefit from doing, which is to find ways to divest from diet culture and anti-fatness in our day-to-day and that can be as small as, you know, reconsidering the language that we use. It could be listening to podcasts, to listen to voices of lived experience, to see things that they do or practices they bring into their lives. It could be making a rule like we don't talk about dieting in our house. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but we just don't talk about it at our house. All of those things I, I would argue would benefit everyone involved, but can be really hugely instrumental for someone who is going through the experience of recovery and may be facing a lot of activating moments outside the home to create that kind of sacred space within the home is, is really helpful. Creating the world that you want to live in, one that is mm. kind of free of these harsh standards, unrealistic standards. And mm -hmm. yeah, 
Well, Maris, it's just been so amazing to have you here with us today. And I just want to wrap up the show with a few questions here. Let's explore these statements. And I just want you to finish each statement with your first thought, your gut, kind of what comes to mind when, when I say this. Connection is a pathway to healing. Body images. An ever-evolving relationship you have with parts of yourself. Diet culture is not working in your favor and does not care about your best interest. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Recovery is a hundred different things for a hundred different people, but absolutely possible and, and absolutely worth it. Mm, that's beautiful. How can all the listeners stay in touch with you and learn more about Equip? A great way to stay in touch um, would be to check out Equip on, on social media. We share a lot of little clips of recovery stories. A lot of our peer mentors show up there and you can kind of get to know them and hear their stories. Um, we're pretty active on our YouTube channel as well. We post a lot of recordings of support groups we have. I tend to pop up there answering other kind of listener questions in that sense as well. So those are two great ways to stay in touch. Well, thank you so much for your time today, for all the incredible work you have put out into the world, for sharing your voice, for just being of heartfelt service. And you're an inspiration to me and a testament of going through the darkness to experience the light. Thank you so much for, for being here, Maris. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Equip to Recover. Remember, recovery is not only possible, it is worth it. Find out more about Equip and how you can access treatment that works over at equip.health.